The Southton Mermaid by Jasper Lestrange. Southton at sea is an unprepossessing place, a down at hill resort on an unlovely stretch of southern coast. But my husband was captivated by it, drawn somehow to it, and I could never fathom why. That is not entirely true, of course. I knew he had fond memories of it from his childhood. It was near to where he had grown up, and he talked about how his father used to take him there on days out to see the sea. I could easily appreciate how the glittering lights of the arcades, the pulsing noise and motion of the end of pier funfair rides, and the bustle of the holiday makers on the promenade would cast their spell on a small boy. Even I, if I squinted, could almost imagine the seafront kiosks and cafes when they were freshly painted in candy-floss pinks, whites and blues, and gleamed in the sun, or distill some Victorian splendour from the white-fronted buildings overlooking the sparkling sea. Yes, I understood nostalgia, but I also knew it was a trick, a trick like the rigged arcade machines and fairground shies, cunningly designed to part fools from their money. Southton at sea was a deception too, one thing masquerading as another. The facades of those grand seafront houses were crumbling. The signs of poverty and decline were everywhere, and since our last visit to the town, back when the children were little, I noticed the mood of the place had shifted too, become desperate, resentful, exhausted. But my husband was somehow oblivious to the peeling paint, the rust, the rot, the seagulls and pigeons scrapping over strewn chip wrappers and fried chicken boxes the rooftops and railings pebble-dashed with bird's mess, loud binge-drinking day-trippers who constantly veered into your path and got too close, the unfriendly-looking vendors and hawkers who rubbed their dirty brown hands together when they saw you, but couldn't even muster a smile as they fleeced you. He either couldn't see or didn't want to. I know I sound unkind, unfair, unreasonable, God knows I have had enough time to dwell on my personal failings. But the truth was, I had long ceased to find my husband's boy-like enthusiasm for this place endearing or infectious, and his inability to see the place for what it was frankly irritated me. We were, all four of us, stood on the promenade, our eyes readjusting to daylight. We had recently emerged considerably poorer from an amusement arcade trading under the misnomer of Fantasy Island, and were planning what to do next. Olivia, our eldest child, was thirteen then, and while the absence of school friends allowed her to enjoy our company unselfconsciously, she had so far been underwhelmed by the tawdry attractions offered by the Esplanade, and wondered aloud what the shops on the high street would be like. Reese, our son, was three years younger and expressed an interest in food and the funfair. Personally, I longed to sit somewhere quiet with just my book and a glass of cold white wine, but I suggested going for coffee instead. Ian pulled out his wallet, opened it, and made a face. 
The wallet was slimmer than it had been in the morning, but the grimace was for effect only. His way of reminding us who was indulging who, even if our accompanying him on his pilgrimage increasingly felt the greater sacrifice. He said we could kill three seagulls with one stone. Did I remember that cafe in the town centre? Giovanni's or something. It served good coffee, nice paninis and baked potatoes. Reese moaned that he'd rather have a burger and chips from the shack a couple of yards away. And Olivia could investigate the shops at the same time. I said I didn't remember, and suggested that it might have closed in the seven or eight years since our last visit. I pointed out an old-fashioned tea room, slightly further along, and reminded Olivia that we were going to a city with proper big shops later in the week, and it might be worth saving her spending money for that. Ian took a twenty-pound note from his wallet and thrust it at Olivia. There, you'll be able to buy the shops in Southdon with that, he said, then noticing my frown. Lauren, this is a holiday. We're meant to be enjoying ourselves. Not for the first time that week I bristled, but said nothing. It was so like him to try and buy the children's affection, and to cast me in the role I'd never asked for. The boring, fussing, nagging half of our parenting partnership. I glanced down and saw a lollipop stuck to the red pavement, alive with crawling ants. How come Livy gets money? demanded Reese. Because no doubt you'll be rinsing me at the funfair later, said his dad. Come on, let's go. Ian frog-marched us, that's what it felt like, in the direction of the town centre. The quickest way was across the common, he said. So we followed the promenade a little further, until we could cross at the lights. The common was a large green area, kept deliberately uncluttered for the hosting of large events like circuses and pop concerts. I remembered our last visit coincided with some waste management expo, and so the whole space had been cluttered with bin lorries, skips, and the latest in chemical toilets. Today, however, in a far corner of the common, was a circus tent. It was maroon rather than red, and although it was a fair size, it did not appear large enough to accommodate a proper circus show. Outside it was a much smaller tent, actually more like a traditional Punch and Judy booth in size and shape, not to mention in its candy stripes, and a few signs, although I could not read them from that distance. The children both remarked on it, but I would not have given it a second look if Ian hadn't suddenly stopped. Well, I never, he said. Would you look at that? We had been walking in a straightish line across the grass, but he started now in the direction of the tent. The children hesitated when I didn't automatically follow. Ian, what are you doing? I asked. Come and look at this, he said. I can't believe it's here again. His words tailed off as he strode purposefully towards the tent, but I heard, after all this time. When we caught up with him, we were roughly halfway there, and I could read the sign above the tent entrance more clearly. Mitchum and Sons World Famous Museum of Marvels, I said. In smaller writing underneath, I made out the words, Curiosities, Natural Wonders, Unexplained Phenomena. Why are we looking at this? My dad brought me to this when I was little, he said, or something like it. It looks exactly as I remember it. 
It looks funky, said Olivia, wrinkling her nose. Drawing nearer, you could see blotches of mildew and streaks of dirty water on the tent's sides, and the flaps of the entrance were ragged and mud-stained where they met the ground. From the Punch and Judy booth, a young boy watched our approach indifferently. He must have been sat on a high stool of some kind, and the booth was more solid than it had first appeared, but there was a wooden counter inside, upon which his hands rested, alongside towers of coins of various sizes and denominations. "'How much to go in?' asked Ian, his wallet already open, his fingers already tugging a note. There was, in fact, pinned to the booth just beneath the window, a notice giving prices, all of which seemed to me exorbitant. "'Just you, or all of you,' said the boy. "'I don't want to go in,' I protested, as Ian handed over the asking price for a family ticket. "'Why not?' asked Ian. "'It's really quite something, if I remember rightly.' The boy had already taken the money in his grubby hands, and was posting the two ten-pound notes into an ancient-looking metal box at his side. "'You been here before, then?' he asked. "'Yes, long time ago,' said Ian. "'Once seen, never forgot,' remarked the boy. Then, addressing me, "'Don't be frightened, madam. There's nothing in there what can hurt you, but plenty will tickle your fancy, if you let it. Might even be enough to turn that frown upside down.' I knew he was speaking the practised patter of the professional showman, parroting lines he had heard his father say, no doubt. In another child it might have been amusing, if precocious, but there was something about the expression on his young, old face that unsettled me. It was faintly lascivious, but he could have been no more than ten years old, about Reese's age, although this boy looked shorter and unhealthy despite his tanned skin. He tore off a rudimentary ticket from Muriel. The small hand that passed it to me had a dirty grey sheen to the flesh, and fingers that reeked of coins. The ticket said simply, Admit one. As he doled out more of the same to Ian and the children, he rattled off a stream of instructions. Turn left when you go in, follow the route round the museum, one way only, no photography, no touching the exhibits, no tapping the glass, and keep out of the water. The final directive seemed to stir for my husband, yet another memory. Is she still here, then? said Ian. Aye, she is, sir, yes, sir. Maybe not exactly as you recall her, said the boy, but every bit as beautiful. Who is she, Dad? asked Olivia. The mermaid, replied her father. At first I thought I'd misheard, but then my eyes fell on the sandwich board to which Ian gestured, and sure enough it showed a picture of a mermaid, posed in classic fashion on a rock out in the sea, combing her luxurious tresses with a seashell comb. It was, significantly, I thought, a drawing... Not a photograph. Boring, said Reese. What else is in there? Mm, all sorts of stuff, said Ian. Interesting stuff. But the mermaid isn't boring. You'll see. I want to see the mermaid, Daddy, said Olivia, bouncing on the spot. A child again. Don't expect too much, I said. Disillusion and disappointment haunted this tent 
just as it haunted the town. The chance of seeing within it anything remotely resembling the picture outside was slim, to say the least. I anticipated either a primitive animatronic in a lagoon of artificial seaweed and garden-centre water features, or more likely, and far more dispiritingly, a glum, middle-aged woman in blonde wig, bikini top, and fake mermaid's tail, sitting on a deck chair in a paddling pool. I tensed at the thought of the four of us having to stand, looking at her, for long enough not to seem rude, but without lingering until it became awkward. Kindly read the notice on your way in, the boy called, leaning out of the booth. I gave it a cursory glance. No refunds, no readmissions, no responsibility accepted for loss of possessions or personal injury. Routine stuff, but it did not allay the sudden, inexplicable apprehension I felt upon entering the dark tent, and I was tempted to let the others go without me, but Ian lifted one of the grimy flaps, and we all went inside one by one, under his arm. To my relief, we were not immediately plunged into blackness. The tent interior was dark, but dimly lit by electric torches on stakes planted into the ground and overhanging lanterns strung above us. We turned left, as directed, following the path laid for us, thick black drapes to our left, a rope cordon to our right, the other side of which were illuminated cabinets containing the museum's exhibits. I need not dwell on the nature of those first exhibits. For a start, they were of the tawdry type you might find at any fairground sideshow. Gimcrack models purporting to be five-legged farm animals, two-headed mammals, the supposed partial skeletons of mythical creatures, grim souvenirs of notable murders and tragedies, drawings, photographs, and wax models of notable circus freaks, antique automatons that kept starting into uncanny life. But secondly, although Reese viewed each artifact with morbid curiosity and took great pleasure in teasing his more squeamish sister, their father kept pushing ahead. As we proceeded, it became evident the path we were taking was a spiral, formed by the positioning of the cabinets and the drapes, a spiral that would lead, no doubt, to the centerpiece of the museum, the infamous mermaid. Signage positioned at regular intervals assured us of this, but the exhibits along the way became more varied. There was a taxidermy section featuring horrifically sensationalised posed scenes of nature, tooth and claw, an eagle feasting on a rabbit, a fox tearing apart a pheasant, a snake caught in the act of digesting a much larger beast than itself and next, a collection of boxes in which we were invited to peer at clever holographic images of vampires, werewolves, and sinister clowns. And between each section, we would pause in front of mirrors that distorted our faces and bodies. But I could tell that Ian was impatient to reach the mermaid, and each time he insisted we move on, until our path stopped abruptly in front of a heavy black curtain that none of us had noticed until we walked into it. This is it, Ian breathed. The curtain parted, and we stepped through into an illuminated circle, dominated by a single glass tank. It stood about two and a half metres in height, with each side about four metres wide. 
The thing that first struck me was how disoriented I must be, for following the winding spiral pathway had suggested we would arrive in a much smaller centre than the one we now found ourselves in. One too small, I would have predicted, to accommodate a tank of that size. I considered that perhaps we had not been following a circular path at all, and somehow had been deceived by the dim light and the placement of the cabinets. We stood, the four of us, before the tank, none of us quite knowing what to say. The tank was full, nearly to the brim, of murky water with a brownish tint. It was cloudy, with tiny flakes and particles, and the uncovered top allowed an unpleasantly fishy odour to escape. No swimming, read Olivia, from the notice stuck not quite perfectly on the glass. No shit. Olivia, I hissed. Language. Ian had stepped right up to the front of the tank, and, making a tunnel with his hands, peered through into the grim water. She'll be in there somewhere, he said. Oh, this is lame, said Reese. I walked around the tank, inspecting each side, seeing nothing. The most interesting things I found were on the outside. A set of rusty folding steps, an orange bucket, empty but heavily stained and smelling of fish, and a coiled yellow hosepipe, the remainder of which snaked under the thick curtain and led who knew where. Perhaps she's having a lunch break, I said, completing my circle of the tank, like we should be, I thought. Ian said nothing. He stood back, disconsolate. In that moment he looked so sad and pathetic that I felt a pang of sympathy. I touched his shoulder and leaned into him. When Dad brought me here, we saw it, he said. I smoothed his hair. Hey, I know, I said. You're a great dad. Children love you. You don't need to live up to anything. The children love me, he said. But a familiar note of sourness had crept into his voice. I turned from him but caught the reflection of his glum face in the glass before he moved away. There's a way out, said Olivia, indicating an exit sign. Come on, Mum. She was parting the curtain for me, and I went to go, but something, some barely perceptible movement glimpsed from the corner of my eye, made me pause. Did something stir in the water? I turned, and for a fleeting moment thought I caught a dark shape, undulating, eel-like, through the brown murk. But whatever it was vanished in an instant, leaving a billowing cloud of filth in its wake. And I dismissed it, and hurried after the others. I suppose I had assumed we would exit via some cunningly hidden path that bisected the main one. But no. To escape, we were obliged to follow the same spiral, retracing our steps, but on a much narrower path between the dark rear side of the cabinets and the black drape. This side was not well lit. At times we were in almost complete blackness, and so we made slow progress, groping and feeling our way, touching the back of the cabinets, which were damp and cobweb-strewn. I stumbled a few times, 
struggling to keep up with Ian and the children, who were always several paces in front, little more than dim shapes, and completely silent. I could hear only my increasingly ragged breathing, and chided myself for my sudden helplessness, a trait I despise in others. Just then I noticed that we had joined the path of the yellow hosepipe. In this light it looked even more snake-like, slithering through the grass. It was reassuring, however, as it suggested an end in sight, and sure enough we finally arrived back at the tent door. For the second time that day we emerged, blinking in the sunlight. Thought you'd all got lost in there, said the little boy in the booth. I couldn't stop myself from scowling at the lad who smirked in return. I glanced at Ian, who looked grief-stricken, and the children, who just seemed bewildered. In that moment, we must have looked like survivors, standing among the wreckage. Did you see the mermaid, then? asked the boy. No, said Ian, despondent. Well, that's mermaids for you, said the boy, as if imparting a great pearl of wisdom. Fickle little madams, ain't they? It's not everyone that gets to see them. I'll just remind you of our refunds policy. We don't give them. But hopefully if you come back another time, our ladyship will deign to make an appearance. I wanted to say, not bloody likely, to tell him there wasn't much hope of seeing anything through the water in that grimy tank, to demand our money back. I always tried to show our children, particularly Olivia, that you must fight your corner. Stand your ground. But staring at the boy's face, with its shrewd little eyes and impudent smile, I knew it would be wasted breath. He was the carnival huckster. We the hapless rubes. Too slow-witted to know we'd been had. I hated that feeling, and marshalling the others, insisted we leave that instant. Our experience in the tent, however, had already cast a pall on the day. Failing to find Giovanni's, we settled for a nondescript cafe, and barely spoke over the bad coffee and dry sandwiches. Olivia insisted on spending the money Ian had given her in a cheap clothing shop. Reese was given some spending money too, to make up for us not going back to the funfair. Ian was sullen and non-communicative throughout. It was as if the holiday had not been about revisiting childhood haunts, after all, but only about seeing the mermaid, and now we hadn't seen it. Everything was ruined. As the day wore on, I found that I resented him more and more, and then hated myself for my resentment. But he was so difficult to be around when he was like this. While Olivia tried on cheap sunglasses in front of a mirror outside a souvenir shop, and Reese pestered for explanations to jokes he found on a series of increasingly risque seaside postcards. I watched my husband's listless passage around the store, and struggled to recall what I ever found attractive about him. Since his father died, he had taken to dressing like him, often putting on deck shoes and navy shorts, a short-sleeved check shirt and a faded old baseball cap that may even have been one of the old man's. With his receding hair, his developing paunch, his whiskery beard with grey in it. He'd started to look older than his age, but it wasn't simply his looks that bothered me. I had lately observed his diminishing interest in fashion, music, television, current affairs, and in our social circle. 
he had begun to potter, like old men potter. He had inherited some of his father's things, and often now in the evenings he would be in the attic room, building a ship in a bottle, one of his dad's hobbies, and I would go up to him with a mug of tea that he would barely acknowledge, and when I went back to say good night, the tea was undrunk and stone cold. He had lost interest in me, too. We were staying in a rented three-bedroom apartment in the centre of Southland at Sea, our touring base for the week. Having returned early from our expedition to the seafront, the evening yawned ahead of us, and a rather gloomy prospect it was, since Olivia and Reese were staring blankly into their devices, and Ian had descended further into depression. Inclined as I was to let him get on with it, I found that I couldn't concentrate on my book because of his alternation between restless pacing and restless sitting. I needed fresh air, so when the children complained of hunger, I assumed the role of lioness, going out for food and returning with fish and chips and wine. I asked Ian to help me plate up in the kitchen and took the opportunity to remonstrate with him. How long are you going to keep this up? I snapped. What up? This performance, whatever it is. I don't know what you mean. You've been a bloody misery guts ever since we came out of that stupid tent. Pull yourself out of it. If not for my sake, for the children's. You're a grown man. It's pathetic. I'm pathetic now, am I? You're being pathetic. Right. This obsession with the past, with your dad. You're not the first person to ever lose a dad. I know, but... But when Mum... When your Mum went missing, I know. He was all you had. He looked like a child, about to cry. I was still angry. And now I felt angrier, because he was making me feel mean. Still, I added, I'm not surprised she left. She had to put up with this crap. She didn't leave us he said. His eyes were wet. She went missing. He began to move away. Now what are you doing? I asked. I'm going for a walk, he said. I stared at him in disbelief. I was torn between cuddling him and screaming at him. Instead, I said, but what about your chips? I'm not hungry, he said, and went. I ate with the children in front of the television. The chips were anemic and soggy, and there were far too many, even without Ian's untouched share. Most of it ended up in the bin. I drank the wine until it gave me a headache. Later, they talked me into a card game with impenetrable rules that only they knew and consequently beat me at several times in succession. Hours passed, and Ian hadn't come back. We put on a nature documentary about strange creatures found in the depths of the ocean. Creatures that used bizarre disguises and transformations to defend themselves, to attack, and to mate. I was drowsy and started to nod off for minutes at a time, my thoughts haunted by monsters devouring each other. And then I sent the children to bed, not because they were tired, but because I was. After they had gone to their rooms, I sat on the sofa, watching but not watching a terrible film on the TV, 
and glancing at the coat missing from the hook by the door, wondering where Ian was. I went back and finished the wine, even though it was now warm, the nasty, acid tang. My mind was full of Ian, and how melancholy he had been. Now it was nearly midnight, and I was really starting to worry. I was also mad, because I knew I wouldn't be able to rest until I had brought him home. I went to see if Olivia was still awake to let her know, but she, like her brother, was already fast asleep. It's the sea air that does it. So I left a note on the coffee table, picked up the apartment keys, and headed out. I already knew in my gut where I should find him. It wasn't simply that it was obvious. It was as if I was being pulled there, drawn as if by a powerful magnet. But that didn't stop me checking the shop doorways and benches as I passed through the dark town centre, empty except for the last few shambling drunks and the homeless people shivering in sleeping bags under piles of blankets and splayed cardboard boxes. When I eventually reached the common, I gasped, my heart pounding, not quite able to comprehend what I saw. Beyond the common, on the seafront, the arcades and kiosks were all closed, their corrugated shutters down. The funfair rides paused in mid-motion, looking like prehistoric monsters silhouetted against the night sky. But ahead of me loomed the circus tent, only now it was surrounded by a ring of flaming torches planted in the ground and positively alive with malevolent intent. I covered the remaining distance in a breathless sprint, slowing down only when I saw the boy again, leering at me from his seat within the candy-striped booth. You're back then, he called. I'm looking for my husband, I said, still panting. Has he been here? The boy's face crumpled into a parody of concern. Lost him, have you? he said. Well, I never. It's funny how they always comes here looking for their spouses. They'd be better off asking what it was led him here in the first place. Isn't that right, Pa? It seemed such an absurd, vulgar thing for a child to say that I was temporarily lost for words. Then I heard footsteps behind me and reeled around in time to see a tall, heavy-set man approaching. He was bald, black-bearded, and what I first took to be a tight-fitting sweater turned out to be his heavily tattooed arms and chest, exposed through a black string vest. What are you doing here? he asked. You want something? The heavy-looking, long-handled sledgehammer that had swung at his side as he walked, he now lifted, so that the head rested on his right shoulder. I need to find my husband, I repeated. He smirked then. It was the same lascivious grin as the sun's. I could feel the heat from those burning torches, their blazes dancing in the night breeze. I knew my cheeks would be reddened. That's what you need, he said, coming too close. Is it what you want? I think he's come back here, I said. He may be in there now. In there? said the man, pointing with the hammer. Yes, I said. He's obsessed with 
your mermaid. As I spoke the words, I knew they sounded ridiculous. I sounded ridiculous. You see, he was amused. Well, he wouldn't be the first, and he won't be the last. I expect you wants to go in and look for him, then. That it? I nodded. The humour left him instantly. Ten pound, he said, holding out his palm. I was gobsmacked again. I'm not paying. Just let me in, I demanded. Ten pound. You're not getting another penny out of me, I said. Seconds passed, and for a moment it was as if we were caught in some interminable spaghetti western standoff. Then he simply smiled and pointed with his long hammer again. Real fire in her eyes, this one. Lovely, he shouted to the boy. Off you go, darling. I don't think you'll find him in there, mind. But we'll be right out here, waiting for you. Their laughter was still ringing in my ears as I pushed through the flaps into the big tent, stepping into the dark and airless space, turning left as before, and following the same spiral path around the museum. It was much darker now, the overhead lanterns barely pricking the gloom, and the torches that marked the path casting a red light that did little to illuminate, but gave the ghastly exhibits a far more sinister aspect. Everywhere the glass eyes of the wax figures and stuffed animals glinted horribly, and shadows gave a terrible impression of independent movement. I hurried past the foul cabinets, every now and then noticing exhibits I had somehow missed on our earlier visit, things of a most disgusting and depraved persuasion, things that looked not fake but organic, fleshy, and wet. As I neared the centre, I was suddenly plunged into pitch darkness. Every light went out at once. I screamed, but immediately regretted it. Those bastards outside had turned off the lights, deliberately, of course, to scare me out of my wits. I would not grant them the satisfaction. Instead, I gritted my teeth and persevered, fumbling, feeling my way, finally dropping to my knees and crawling on all fours in the wet grass, until I found it, the thick curtain that shrouded the center circle in which the tank stood. I crawled under it, and to my relief, into light again. Standing up, I approached the tank, apparently uninhabited as before, the water undisturbed. Yet I knew, from a sense, an instinct, call it what you will, that Ian had been there, had stood there as I was standing now, and very recently. I walked up to the tank, put my hands to the glass, and then I stepped back, confused and disgusted. The glass was wet. I turned my hands over and studied my palms, the water on them had a brown and greenish tint. Suddenly, a heavy thud made me jump. I looked up, startled, took several paces backwards. There was something in the tank, a creature floating in the murky water, human-sized and vaguely humanoid in appearance. 
Its fists banged on the glass, and its mouth gaped like a fish gulping air, issuing a rushing stream of bubbles that partially obscured the awful face. Repulsed, I ran, without looking back, ran like a cartoon character with my arms stretched out in front, ran panting through the terrible darkness, and not stopping until I burst from the tent and tumbled to the ground, back outside, where the boy and his father were waiting. They watched with amusement as I gathered myself. Didn't find him then, said the father, sardonically. I staggered to my feet, still catching my breath. That thing in there, I panted. What the hell is it? Don't know what it is, do it? He said. Question is, what did you make of it? It was horrible, I said. He looked disappointed. That's a shame. There's plenty feel differently, he said. What did you say about her, boy? She's on Paragon, Par. Meaning? Without equal, matchless, one of a kind, Par. There you go. Hear that? Unparagoned. Did all fortnight at primary school, that one. That's why I entrust the day-to-day -day running of this business to him. Set for acquisitions, which is my field of expertise. He studied the head of the long-handled hammer, turning it over in his hand. Now... I wouldn't say she's one of a kind myself, mind. I've seen plenty like her in my time. But she's certainly quite a catch. They both laughed, enraging me further. Look, I cried, I just want you to help me. Did my husband come here tonight? And being the chivalrous type, I'd love to assist you. But unfortunately, I don't know what your husband looks like, do I? said the man. But he does, I said, gesturing to the boy, who was busy examining his dirty fingernails. Ain't seen him, he said, without looking up. I suddenly felt very tired. Exasperated, I told them what I thought of their vile little sideshow, and made some vague threat about going to the police, which only succeeded in provoking more mirth. Then, feeling utterly impotent and wretched, I stormed off in the direction of the seafront, leaving the boy, the man, and the circus tent behind me. My mind was still racing as I walked, trying to make sense of what I'd seen in the tank. In truth, I'd only glimpsed it for mere seconds, not long enough to form a clear impression. It occurred to me now that, while I had been startled by it, the creature itself had not been particularly frightening. It was ugly, unpleasant with its hairless scalp and the grey scaly texture of its flesh, grotesque even in the way its eyes bulged and the mouth opened, and in the suggestion of a body split from the waist down into indistinct, trailing tentacles. But it was not, perhaps, the stuff of nightmares. Indeed, even these few minutes later, the abiding memory was not one of horror, but of the sad pleading quality in the creature's eyes, and I ruminated briefly on the intelligence seen in dolphins and porpoises. 
These thoughts occupied me until I reached the promenade, where I stood looking left to right for any sign of Ian and saw no one. The only noise came from the waves folding over the shingle beach. Ian had grown up close to this coast. I was from further inland. Standing there, listening to the ceaseless hiss of the waves and the clink of pebbles scattered by the surf, I began to understand some of the magic this constantly transforming landscape possessed. The pull that Ian presumably felt. The moon looked enormous that night, and the reflection it cast on the surface was like a torch beam projected upwards from the bottom of the sea. It was much cooler on the promenade, especially after the oppressive warmth of the tent and the heat from the blazing torches, and I shivered in the night breeze that rippled my light jacket, ruffled my hair, and sent fish and chip wrappers fluttering past my feet. I felt hopelessly lost, untethered from reality. As awful as my experience in the tent had been, I could not shake the feeling that either the worst was still to come, or it had already happened, and I didn't yet know. Ian had been so miserable earlier. What if he'd... I blinked the thought away, and looked out to sea, scanning the horizon before realising I was looking for him, as if I might see him out there, in the sea, like that poem, not waving, but drowning. But then I did see him, somewhere ahead. Down on the sloping shore, he was standing still, looking across the water, his hands thrust into his pockets. His back was to me, but it was clearly Ian. I called out, and he did not turn. I realised that the rush of the waves was enough to drown out my voice. I climbed through the railing and jumped down onto the beach, running as best I could over the rough stones, and arriving at his side, out of breath and dishevelled. I was furious with him, but also relieved, and I felt something I hadn't felt for some time. Joy at seeing him. I was worried about you, I said. He turned, but didn't speak. You were gone so long I had to come out looking, I went on. I went to that stupid circus tent first on the common. You weren't there. I saw something in there. Maybe you saw it too. You did go there, didn't you? Anyway, it doesn't matter now because I found you. When you weren't there, I... Thought you'd done something stupid. He looked at me, oddly. He didn't look morose like he had earlier. He didn't look sad or angry. Just infuriatingly, maddeningly unconcerned. Did you hear me? I thought you might have killed yourself. Why can't you say something? Why don't you bloody speak to me? I pounded his chest with my fists, and he gripped my arms, not roughly, but enough to stop me. I'm sorry, he said. I just needed to escape for a while. Clear my head. I, I couldn't breathe. I didn't mean to scare you. I'm sorry. He spoke to me in a soft, low voice, and drew me closer, his hands brushing my windswept hair aside then cupping my face as he kissed my forehead. I was still angry, but his sincerity, his sudden tenderness, disarmed me, and my anger was merged 
with a longing I hadn't felt for some time. His eyes glittered in the moonlight. I'm sorry too, I said. I know we've been growing apart. I want to change things, but I don't know how. We'll be all right, won't we? He kissed my forehead again, then shushed me and tilted my head to kiss my lips, threading his fingers in my hair. I had forgotten how strong he could be, how passionate. I had forgotten how to surrender. We embraced. Our kisses became urgent. I felt intoxicated, exhilarated. A rush of relief mingled with desire. Something knotted and locked up within me demanded release. Instinct took over. His coat on the rough, hard stones became a blanket. And we made love. Right there on the beach, under the cover of the stars. Like teenagers. Without shame. Without guilt. Without caution. Without the weight of life beating down upon us. Without a past. In the moonlight, he became handsome again. The way he looked at me told me I was beautiful. And afterwards, we just sat, snuggled together for warmth, with me wrapped up in his coat, gazing up at the bright moon. We talked. I talked. And for once, I knew he heard me. Was listening. I kept laughing, even though my teeth were chattering. And when we said it was time to head back, we couldn't find his socks and shoes, and I laughed even harder. Giggling and whispering, we eventually crept back into our apartment. I felt naughty, irresponsible, young, foolish. Everything was as it had been, the children asleep, the empty bottle of wine on the table alongside the note I had left, undiscovered and unread. We undressed, fell into bed fell asleep easily in an embrace. It was the first time we had slept face to face in years. If this was a different kind of story, it would end there. If I wanted to spare you the unsettling implications and uncertainties that I have had to reconcile myself to, I should say no more. But the story must be told. You deserve to know what came next. Morning came. The sun was streaming through the bedroom window, and I began to stir with a sour taste in my mouth and a faint headache. Groaning, I remembered the bottle of wine I'd polished off by myself and that I hadn't brushed my teeth before going to bed. Then I remembered falling asleep in Ian's arms and smiled. Today would be a good day, the start of a happier future. My eyes were still half-closed, and sighing dreamily, I reached out to touch him. But instead of his soft, warm skin, my fingers met with something lumpy, slimy, and wet. I was jolted awake 
When I saw it, I shrieked, recoiling with the covers clutched to me. There, strewn on the pillow and down the length of the bed, was a mass of tangled seaweed in thick, leathery fronds of dark green, brown, and purple. Rank-smelling green-tinged water was pooled in the indentations and creases of the bedsheets. But there was no sign of Ian. My chest pounding, my head throbbing, I hastily pulled on the first clothes I found and tore out of the apartment. I had a terrible notion that I had overlooked something the night before. Even so, you might wonder why I went directly to the common again to find the circus tent. I can't explain it now, just as I couldn't have explained it then. Yet I knew it was to the tent, that accursed tent, I must go. But when I came onto the common, I was stopped in my tracks. The tent was gone. I walked slowly to the space where we had found it. At first, I was sure that I would find no trace of it ever existing, that it would be revealed as a dream, an illusion, and I would be forced to question my sanity. But as I came closer, I saw the holes where the torches had been staked into the ground, and bigger ones where the tent pegs had been. I saw burnt grass, some tire marks, flattened, discoloured areas where the cabinets had stood. Then I noticed them. Perfectly ordinary things, but where they were placed in the centre of the spiral where the big water tank had been. Perfectly dreadful. I walked to them, though I already knew what they were, and could guess at their meaning. Around me, Southton at sea was coming to life. The seafront would soon be thronged with people. Overhead, the seagulls cried with mocking laughter as if they too had colluded in Southton's latest deception, the bait and switch. I alone remained frozen, for movement would demand action, and I had not the faintest idea what to say or do next. Fragments came together, distorted images became clear, the ground beneath me, fell away. There, in the grass, were Ian's blue and white deck shoes, and into each one he had thrust a balled-up sock. Today's story was The Southton Mermaid it was written and read by Jasper Lestrange. As always, thank you for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>